1: Alright, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Steve Wilson. We're at the new Bay House, To uh, Be Bay House here in Lincoln City. Uh, it's March 6, 2020. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with the first question, most important question. Why wine? Why hospitality? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh,
0: I, I grew up in Iowa. The first job I could get in eighth grade was working at a uh, drive-in where if you did a good job when they closed the outdoor part in the winter then you got promoted and I got promoted to dishwasher and that was close enough to where the cook was working and I wanted to learn how to cook a burger and one thing led to another and uh, somehow I ended up staying in the restaurant business and I got to college at the University of Iowa and uh, started to realize that wine was a bigger part of what we were doing. I think the Italian restaurant I worked at in college had 13 or 14 wines on the list. We had red, white and rosé uh, so it was uh, pretty snappy. Um, I took the only wine class that the University of Iowa offered. It was uh, taught by a professor in the geology department so consequently he focused on soil and sun and exposure and it was not especially exciting. A state school we could not drink uh, even though it was an 18 state at the time uh, so there was you know it was an interesting class but not my favorite and uh, really as I, uh, I got finished with college and I realized that A course of study in political science can lead you to grad school or continuation in food and beverage, which I chose. And uh, I had always wanted to come to Oregon. In fact, in the mid-seventies, I investigated coming to school at Oregon, and the difference between in-state and out-of-state tuition at that time, since I was paying, convinced me to be a Hawkeye rather than a duck, and I'm embarrassed to say how inexpensive college used to be. To be a Hawkeye, I think it was $500 a year, that was two terms. Uh, and I think it was ten times as much to be a duck. Still a relatively um, a pittance these days and I'm sorry that that's not the case anymore. But uh, after college I realized I was free to go and I ended up in Portland, and uh, I was at the Benson Hotel as a bartender, and opened Atwater's, which is now uh, the Portland City Grill, I was there for you know, six or eight months, and one day a friend of mine said, oh, have you ever been to Salishan, and I was like, what's a Salishan? <laughs> um, so I, I found out, it was at that time the only five-star, five-diamond operation in the Northwest, and so. I called Salishan, and I said, hey, I'm in the food and beverage business, and I've never been to a five-star, five-diamond resort before, I would love to come and take a tour, and they said, well, sure. So we made plans to uh, to drive out on a Saturday, and my friend Larry, who had uh, first asked me if I'd been to Salishan, and I jumped in my van, and on the way, there were two or three wineries at that point, and we stopped at all of them, and we had a nice little buzz going, we were having a great time, and so we get to the resort, and uh, I was met at the front desk, and they're like, oh, you're Steve, well, great, well, here, you go with this gentleman here, and they'll interview you, and then uh, your friend Larry will keep him entertained down in the wine cellar, and I was like, interview? <laughs> Wait, We stopped at three wineries, and we like, well, okay so I spent the next three hours interviewing with everybody from Phil DeVito, uh, Tim Tuffield was the restaurant manager, I interviewed with uh, Janet Smith who was HR, with Russ Cleveland who was the general manager I was quite kind of surprised frankly and at the end of that day they said well we'd love to have you join our staff so that's how I came to work at Salishan beginning in early 1983 my friend Larry was getting sauced down in the <laughs> wine cellar which at that time Phil had built up the collection to I think we probably had, I don't know, 2,500 different labels down there of which only 1,700 were on the list. So it was a a seller aging program that was going on. And so I was happy to get the job and my friend Larry was just happy. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) we had a great time. So I joined the staff as a as a, as a uh, captain in the dining room and I spent my daytimes uh, working down in the wine cellar as the assistant cellar keeper. And uh, that was really my first major exposure to wine. I learned an awful lot working next to Phil. And uh, at that time, Tom Brozzi was the cellar keeper. He did a lot of the day-to-day work and uh, had originally been the guy who dug the cellar out from underneath the cedar tree uh, event space. Um, they kind of took over part of what had been the accounting department and started digging. And well, you've probably seen that cellar; it's an amazing piece of work and a, mm-hmm. a, the real deal. Mm-hmm. So that was a was a really <laughs> awesome opportunity for a kid from Iowa, who really you know apparently they're making wine in Iowa now, but uh, not at that time. So <laughs> it was a it was a pretty
1: dramatic change. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, as you were learning about wine, tell me about how you learned, and tell me about what sort of Phil's influence yeah. on, on that. Well, Phil was an amazing guy, and really
0: more than more than just a, a great sommelier and waiter and and public servant, he was a real gentleman, and uh, he knew a lot about wine from a time when nobody cared. Uh, one of my favorite stories with Phil, we had an incredible selection of Great Grand Cru Bordeaux from the 1961 vintage at that time, the vintage of the century, which he was buying for $10 a bottle. The accounting department said, you're kidding, you paid $10 for one bottle of wine? So we've come a long way. <laughs> so, but uh, being a program the caliber that we were, a lot of samples came our way. Uh, a lot of personal relationships with the fledgling Oregon wine industry there was always 30 or 40 bottles of wine that should be opened and tasted and pretty much every night after work we would gather somewhere in the dining room and Phil would open up two or three bottles and start talking about what he knew about wine and what he knew about the person who made it or the processes or the grapes or the region and really after about four years of that really felt like that was the best education a person can get. I mean there's a lot to read, there's a lot to study, but unless you're getting wine to your lips, you really don't have the opportunity to comprehend uh, all the details that that, uh, wine entails. So I I blame Phil for that. I also blame him for my addiction for a large wine list with a lot of uh, a lot of options, a lot of selection, a lot of depth and breadth. Uh, And pretty much everywhere I went after I left Salishan in 88 establishing a wine program much larger than I had inherited <laughs> always seemed to be a priority for me but I, you know I saw the reaction that guests had to something that they hadn't seen before that uh, wine aficionados the excitement that they had I mean I distinctly remember guests at Salishan who had check in and come down to the wine cellar and go through the list and talk with Phil or anybody down there and try to figure out how they were going to drink all these bottles of wine when they were only going to be there for two nights and two dinners. So, uh, you know, uh, I I always thought that was pretty inspirational
1: and, and very
0: successful wine program back then.
1: How did how did Phil build that? What was he? You talk about depth and breadth. Uh, yeah. Tell me about how, what was he looking for? How was he trying to <clears throat> to build the, the the collection? Well, as I understand, Phil Phil
0: showed up in '72, and at that time, I think there were eight or ten selections on the wine list. The same same sort of thing, and he brought this relatively unheard of wealth of knowledge and excitement and enthusiasm for wine. At some point he convinced uh, ownership uh, John Gray to give him a commission and a budget and that he would build a program and show that it was that made sense in a lot of ways both for attracting guests and just sales of food and beverage and As I understand, it didn't take him very long to build up the program. Uh, I think they dug the cellar out in the late 70s sometime. I'm not exactly sure when that was, but by then he had wine stashed under everybody's desk in every office, in the back room here, in the storage room there, and they finally decided that it made sense. But he built a program that was incredibly successful, and as i understand it for quite a few years he made more money than anybody at salishan including the general manager because his commission was good and he ended up selling over a million dollars worth of wine at a time when that was just unheard of and especially in a remote location like the oregon coast so there was a he had he had drive <laughs> and enthusiasm and he would work the floor every night on, in the dining room and Phil would never forget. We had a formula, you know. If Phil helped sell wine, then you'd have to kick him down a percentage. I don't. It, it would, didn't seem like it was too much. It was maybe five percent of the wine sales or something like that. That man kept track. At the end of the night, he would show up and he go,
1: "Well, I sold this much wine in your station." So, <laughs> so yeah, Phil did okay. <laughs> Tell me about what your job entailed and what the Salishan experience was like as a guest at that time in, in the eighties.
0: Oh, yeah, great. Well, like I said, as the only five-star, five-diamond operation in the Northwest, it was a standout. I think he was one of the first uh, uh, grand award-winning wine programs in the country. And so that kind of focus um, attracted the kind of guests that we still like today. You know, the ones who are seeking a culinary destination. They want good food. They want good wine. They're interested in learning, but they already know a lot. And so that was kind of the... uh, attraction there. As far as uh, as the guests that uh, we liked most often, lots of regulars who would be in the dining room, whether it was once a year or four times a year, it was, you know, Salishan did a really good job of promoting that personal touch where you were remembered. Mm -hmm. um, Alex Murphy, one of the first general managers there, long before computers, had a stack of 3 by 5 cards and he noted specific personal information about each of his guests every afternoon prior to check-in, he'd be standing down in the lobby greeting these guests and he'd be reviewing his cards. Oh, how's your daughter doing at Oregon? How's your son doing? And You know, oh, did you finish that garage you were building? That kind of stuff and that was the the kind of hospitality that really appealed to me in a a world that's become very automated and uh, very formulaic it was definitely out of the ordinary then, and I think it's even more out of the ordinary now. So that's, that's inspired me to stay in hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as what my job entailed back then as a bright-eyed 25-year-old waiter, well, uh, working in the dining room, it was kind of an old-fashioned place. We had a lot of the tableside cooking was still going on, a couple of salads and two or three entrees were finished and four or five desserts. Uh, so uh, being able to learn that and, and uh, you know, schmooze your guests that way. Of course, I've said it for a long time, now that there's television, I mean, if you want to see explosions and fire, you can get that any But in the olden days, if you wanted to see that, you had to be in a nice dining room with a waiter who knew what he was doing. Um, So then, uh, as I got more and more comfortable in the program, there was an opportunity to join the wine cellar staff, which at that time was a staff of two, uh, Phil as the guy, uh, Tom Brozzi as the cellar keeper, who basically did the physical work and the day-to-day menial receiving and stocking and whatnot and so then there was a spot for an assistant to him and so I guess that was me I got to push the cart full of wine up the incline from the cellar up into the dining room to stock those areas every day we did tours and tastings every day for the guests so guests would sign up at the front desk and then you would pick them up in the lobby and take them down and walk them through a a veritable department store of wine and there was I think about 36,000 bottles down in the cellar at that time. So it was an impressive stack and then we'd sit down and cut up a little cheese and then expose people to the fledgling Oregon wine industry. at the conclusion of said tasting, we'd taste six or seven wines and yak it up, and then at the conclusion of the tasting, try to take advantage of the retail sales license that we had. So a lot of people would, you know, the Oregon wines, even back at the beginning, incredibly impressive. So it wasn't rare to, you know, hook somebody up with a case or two of wine on the, on the way out. Mm-hmm. So
1: That was pretty fun. Tell me about the Oregon wine industry that you as you got to know it and uh, who, who you were meeting in this through this job, and who, whose wines were being stocked there, and whose you wines know. were selling there Well, you know Phil
0: had, a, had his finger on the pulse way back when, but when I first got there. Uh, it wasn't rare to see David Lett there and David Adelsheim, Richard Summer from uh, down south the ways, some of the pioneers that we had. Uh, Myron Redford was uh, was there a lot, and uh, Dick Arath, um, uh, and the Silk Blossers. I mean, it's just a wonderful bunch of people who are still making fantastic wine. Whether they're still directly involved or not, their name has lived on, and uh, the wines have gotten nothing but better. But at that time, it was kind of a, almost a secret. I mean, people were very surprised to find out that wines were being grown in, in Oregon, and even more surprised when they had a chance to sample the quality that was coming out. So, uh, you know, I often joke that back then, it was hard to find an Oregon wine that cost more than 10 bucks now it's hard to find one that <laughs> that is less than that that you'd want to drink. Um, so it's, it's been kind of fun to watch the industry come along. It's become a, a pretty big thing. And still is. I mean, people are still still interested. Mostly I think because our production is small and if you're from, uh, you know, farther away than about the middle of the country, it's kind of hard uh, to find some of our wines in, in some big markets. So mm. people get out here and they're, they're pretty, pretty surprised and impressed.
1: So tell me about, uh, we're, oh, I was what I was going to say there. We're going to cut that part out. I'm going to start the question <laughs> over. What happened after you left Salishan? Well, I guess um, Salishan was the first place that I
0: worked that uh, I had incredible respect for the management and ownership. And prior to that, my experiences with managers, was they were either related to the owner, uh, they were, they didn't necessarily work their way into their position. I hadn't really had a chance to work with a lot of high-end professional hospitality people. And uh, When I got to the Benson Hotel, uh, Peter Egner was the uh, the maitre d' and dining room manager. He impressed me. They had a great collection at that time. I got off to Salishan and that was really the first time that I saw like general management who was Genuinely in, interested in hospitality. Uh, shortly after I arrived, Russ Cleveland departed, and, and Hank Hickox arrived. And uh, his sense of humor, his ability to. Um, talk with guests and not just hear the words they were saying but hear the message they were conveying and the fact that we were able to be out here in the middle of nowhere with a five-star, five-diamond operation, with a world-class reputation, uh, very inspiring to me. So after about four years uh, in the dining room in the wine cellar, uh, I made it clear that I was interested in the management opportunity. Yeah. Sadly, Salishan was a place where once uh, a person got a job, they rarely left, and so rather than have to wait around for somebody to die in a position that I would be interested in, uh, I decided it was time to move on. So, I think I became the only person to ever work at both five-star, five-diamond motels, and Salishan was considered a motel by the uh, triple a and by uh, uh, the mobile travel guide at that time because you drove up to the rooms Uh, the other one was quail lodge down in carmel so i accepted a a food and beverage management position down there and that you know it got me away from the northwest which was the sad part it was uh, fun and interesting to be down in carmel and on the monterey peninsula it's a beautiful part of the world and I'd probably still be there if I had like a six-figure income but I didn't. Uh, it's a very expensive place to be. I'm sure it's more expensive now. It was pretty expensive back in 88. And uh, so uh, I spent uh, oh, 10 or 12 months there. Uh, then I accepted a position with, uh, with Sheridan Corporation up in Tacoma and that got me back to the Northwest and that felt pretty good and then from there I ended up uh, back in Southern California for a while. I got to, to open, uh, reopen the old Del Mar Hotel. Uh, and so that was kind of fun. I spent five years down in the in Southern California. Great place to visit. Never really seemed like home. Uh, so I, I got the opportunity to move back to Portland. And I did my second stint at uh, the Benson Hotel as the public food and beverage manager there. Uh, opened the Roos Chris Steakhouse in 97. Uh, just kind of Taking advantage of one of the few benefits of a career in in food and beverage which is you can go about anywhere and get a job about anywhere you might not get rich but there's definitely employment opportunities and so I think these all kind of added to my uh, my knowledge and understanding of the philosophy of hospitality uh, I took a two-year stint down in uh, Miami I worked for a, a Marriott operation down there and so It was kind of nice and one day uh, I was at the Eden Rock Renaissance Hotel in Miami Beach and one day my boss there said I think that funny sounding place you used to work at on the Oregon coast is looking for an assistant general manager and director of food and beverage and I was like Salishan? Like no, nobody ever leaves Salishan, that couldn't be it. Well it was true. I missed a lot in the 17 years I was gone. Um, Spring Capital from Eugene had purchased the resort and uh, they flew me out, interviewed me, offered me the job and it was kind of a dream come true for me to get back to Salishan in a management capacity and that was in 2005. Sadly it didn't take me long to realize that a lot had changed, no longer the five-star, five-diamond reputation, It had been through some pretty bumpy time and multiple ownership and management operations and they really didn't have that spirit of hospitality that has so motivated me so after about Six or seven months, I was approached by a guest at the resort who said, "You know, we're buying the Bay House, and uh, we're looking for somebody to take a long-term lease uh, with an ownership uh, opportunity, and we think you'd do great." And I said, "Man, I am flattered, but never, never, never own a restaurant." I said, "But you know, they lived in Southern California." And I said, "But I'll, I'd be happy to help you find somebody." And so I got to know uh, J.D. Boyd and his wife Maria. Uh, over the course of about five months and one day he just said look what would it take? We think you'd do great. I said well if the restaurant had a bar that I designed and you built I'll sign on the line. And so that's how I came to to sign the lease with JD and Maria Boyd. We got the lounge put on the restaurant. I think he thought he would spend about a quarter of a million to get me to sign and that's about what the construction of the building itself cost the addition and his wife wanted to play a part so she selected ninety thousand dollars worth of furniture and the riprap was failing so I think that was another couple fifty to get that and then of course the fire marshal said now you've got to retrofit the building with a sprinkler system that was apparently not cheap I think he ended up spending about seven hundred thousand dollars <laughs> basically to fulfill his part of the, the lease which get me to sign so we, uh, I had a landlord for about five years until apparently money was not getting to the bank anymore and that made him cranky and we ended
1: up with a mortgage in 2010. So before we get to the Bay House, I'm curious on the, the, your other stops along the way. You talk about opening restaurants and tell me what your, what your role was at some of these places. Were you c- coming in creating something from scratch? Were you reinventing something? What were you, what were you actually doing?
0: Yeah, uh, well, being the food and beverage guy, which apparently uh, most hospitality people and professionals stay away from. It's a lot of work. It's the biggest challenge of any hospitality operation. And it's not nearly as profitable uh, as a rooms division. Uh, in fact I I spent a couple years as the the night hotel manager at what was then the Fifth Avenue Suites in downtown Portland, it's now the Monaco, and uh, I was amazed at how much easier it was to satisfy guests. If you gave them a room that they liked, that's, that's the last you heard from them. It's not like food, where it's like this is cold, it's overdone, it's not the way I like it, it's, you know, why don't, can I get this with that, that kind of thing. So it's it was a, a lot more of a challenge. So the places that I showed up and uh, got a chance to help open, it was just a matter of setting up the operation, uh, working with the chef to do food because I am a lousy cook, um, but basically just lining things up so that they would operate. So I'd be in charge of the service staff,
1: the wine beverage program, and then working with the chef to deliver. As you're building this wine list, you talked about leaving every place with a lot more wine than you when you got there. Tell me about building a wine program and how you, what you took from Salishan and what you kind of gained along the way as it came to building a wine list. It's a sickness, I think. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's like I think in the terms of any serious collection, it's hard to know when to say when. Um, And uh, again, it's the the Phil DeVito disease, I think. But when I took over the Bay House, very respectable program there, about 250 selections on the wine list. And it just seemed like a natural progression that over the course of about the next five or six years, that selection grew to about 2,100 labels (laughs) there for a while. And even as a small place, a small restaurant in a small uh, corner of, of the state, that's very seasonal, uh, we definitely attracted our fair share of attention. You know, we got some national publicity for the wine program through both the Wine Spectator and the Wine Enthusiast, um, and those kinds of accolades are nice. Um, I'm not especially excited by awards, and as as time goes on I'm less and less excited by awards because they sort of seem like it's all you know it's it's all about marketing and sales and so oftentimes it doesn't have as much to do uh, with uh, the realities of the program as it does with who's got a good PR person and what's the marketing budget look like but uh, those kinds of things are always fun it's good recognition for the staff I think uh, the recognition we were most excited about was the four-diamond rating from AAA. There's only a couple other in our state and remains so. <clears throat> so that, that kind of uh, recognition, I think, for a job well done is, is uh, kind of the only payoff <laughs> that comes along with a, a nice restaurant.
1: What is a what is a when you talk about a four diamond? What does that mean in, in terms of what are you offering that other places aren't? What is the, what 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 is the what is the rating entail? Yeah.
0: Well, as I understand it, about a third of it, it relates to quality and creativeness of food and the culinary presentation. About a third of it is based on service and uh, attitude and philosophy, and the other third is basically on the comfort of and the layout, the design, that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> despite the fact that the Bay House was built in 1937. It was a, uh, an accumulation of four or five different uh, additions uh, to what it was. Incredibly well maintained. I we have a, a wonderful gal, uh, Carrie Johnson, who has taken care of that place. I'm the third owner that she worked for. So for uh, over 20 years uh, she maintained interior and exterior. Uh, she does paint. Uh, she is really good. Um, I'm very blessed with a, a, a quality service staff that uh, seem to get it, enjoy taking care of their guests, and again, it's that personal touch that is kind of disappearing these days. And again, a lot of things you can do when you're really small, uh, as the Bay House was, but. I probably answered 99% of the phone calls. I was there to greet the guests when they arrived, and I was the guy giving them their coat on the way out. And you just don't see that anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. And I did it mostly because I couldn't afford to have other people on hand and a great big staff for that. But again, it's that, uh, my uh, personal uh, achievement of being able to take care of people like that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of
1: kept me motivated all these years, and still does. You talked about your a couple times about your kind of service service philosophy, your hospitality philosophy, and you've kind of described it. But I'm curious if you could if you could sum it up what you would say is your hospitality philosophy and how do you uh, relay that to people who work for you? Yeah, well, if I had to put it in one sentence,
0: I'd have to say it's nice people taking care of nice people. Um, I I don't. Uh, the mechanics of what I do and what the service staff does I've I've said for a long time you could teach a chimp to do it but you couldn't necessarily teach a chimp to enjoy it, you couldn't necessarily teach a chimp to be personal but you know taking orders and delivering food and presenting and serving wine these are all very easy tasks but to do it with a a certain level of pride and panache and enjoyment uh, goes a long way so I've I've always been very lucky in selecting uh, people who got it, who enjoyed what they did. It wasn't just a job where you do it, I can't wait to go home and do something else kind of a thing, mm-hmm. so um, we have, have had some really long-term staff. I haven't always picked the right person, but mostly we've had really great people. Um, so that's, that's kind of it. Um, a lot of times I see these days, especially now in the terms of social media becoming such a big thing, there's a, there's a lot more inclination of restaurateurs to sort of roll over and take it. And uh, I think there's, there are guests out there who think that if they complain about something, it'll be comped, and that's great because we all like to save money um, at the same time. Uh, I, I, I can't do that. <laughs> we're too small, we work too hard at what we're doing and you know I'm, I'm happy to uh, apologize and make up for any mistakes that we made, but when we get some of these reviews that are posted by people who are obviously working it for an ulterior motive, I just I have a hard time standing up for that. I've written some what I consider to be fairly humorous yet pointed responses to some of those ads or some of those reviews rather and uh, it's amazing but I get a lot of people who come in and say oh my god we laughed so hard at this response we went and read all your other responses and you know and so in that way it's kind of helped our marketing Um, case in point a couple years back we had a gentleman come in and he was pretty late to the game Uh, we were not serving anymore and uh, but we said if, if you'd be comfortable in the bar, we'd be happy to, the chef's still here. And so he ordered a, an entree from the dining room menu, the duck, fabulous. And uh, apparently after he had finished with his duck, he stood up in the bar and made a huge deal about how he was gonna tell the world that we're serving chicken and calling it duck because he knows the difference between chicken and duck. And we're like, uh, okay, well, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, sir, but we don't have any chicken on the menu. There's not a chicken in, (laughs) anyway. So uh, this occurred on a night when uh, I was actually consulting with Salishan at that time. So I wasn't there for his departure, but apparently he went right out in the parking lot because he posted an immediate review about how all these guys are serving chicken and calling it duck. And uh, so my response, to him was basically, I will give you one million dollars if you can find a chicken in this restaurant, you know, not surprisingly I never heard back from him, but I've had so many guests come in and go, oh my god, we were there that night, that guy blew up about the chicken and duck thing, and other people are just like, man, that was just hilarious, did you ever get his million dollars? So that kind of stuff is kind of fun. Um, It's a little aggravating when you get a review that you don't feel you deserve, and uh, you know, the process for me is first I lose sleep, and then I waste a couple hours, crafting a response. And if I'm not giggling by the time I'm done, then I know it isn't quite right to post. So that's pretty much my plan. And luckily we don't
1: get very many of those. But. I, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to making your wine list, I'm curious what your looking for in a wine that you're gonna serve? Is it it filling a niche? Is it a certain price point? Is it a certain style or varietal or a country? Or is it, how does it fit? Why do you choose some wines over others? Well, it's it's kind of a combination of those things, I think, and
0: uh, certainly being in the Northwest, we wanna have a good selection of wines from the Northwest. I think our program currently, about 35% of the list is from the Northwest. Thank God Washington is producing some great Cabernets and uh, the, you know, the Oregon wines being a little more delicate and, uh, and equally wonderful, um, which is great. Uh, there's a personal aspect to it as well, you know, we want to help the winemakers that have helped Oregon and uh, certainly there's loyalties for me, for the staff, and for guests. You know, you want to see some names on your list and um, I've got a lot of uh, a lot of personal respect for some of those pioneers who got the ball rolling and are still making great wines so um, now that I'm apparently much older uh, I see wine lists of Oregon wines with lots of wineries I don't recognize and I see a lot of the pioneers that are no longer represented and I understand it's it's a fashion thing and you you oftentimes want to be at the forefront of fashion um, <clears throat> we try to feature things that you know have a foundation both in the in this area and worldwide to sort of build on. And I'm always happy to help a winemaker who's new at the game. Uh, we typically get approached and I'm always happy to to buy a case of wine and give it a whirl. It, it isn't a big risk for me to add one more uh, wine to the list or feature it as a, a by the glass sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as within varietals, it's nice to have a broad range from you know the more delicate Uh, Pinot Noirs, the more Burgundian style, the bigger, richer, more California-type things. Just being able to, you know, have a selection for guests. A lot of times, guests are looking for specific labels, things they've read about, or uh, things they may not be able to get, or just things that they're familiar with. So sometimes that determines uh, why I'll put a wine on a list, if it has good name recognition. It's kind of interesting, you know, Mondavi is a great example. there was a time, boy, 20 years ago, you had to have a lot of Mandavi wines on the list because they were very well known and people showed up and that's what they were looking for. Um, we still have some, we still have some of the, you know, the uh, the reserve wines and some of those old Cabernets that are fantastic. But it's amazing, very few people are looking for a Mandavi wine these days, even though some of them are tr- pretty tremendous. They've mm-hmm. gone through their own, you know, familial turmoil over the years and, uh, you know various ownership changes and whatnot so that probably affects their marketing and and the loyalty that they once commanded mm-hmm. but some of those older wines are still terrific and it's it's uh, you know there's no reason that they can't make good wine and they still do make good wine but you know now there's I don't know what 800 wineries in Napa Valley or something so they, you know they don't really command the, the percentage of uh, of mine that they used to just a, just an example. And the same thing is happening happening in, in Oregon. I, there's a lot of wine lists in a lot of nice places where I would expect to see Irie wines. I mean, some of those Pinot Noirs are amazing. And you know, for, other, for whatever reason, they're not as well represented in some places that I think they should be. But
1: I'm doing my part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell me about... Uh... It's about the at the Bay House specifically. And now, as you're, as you're sort of moving the Bay House, the transition here, uh, why why w- why do people come? Why why w- why would people come to the Bay House? Why 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 are they going to come here? What is it you offer that that, uh, that other places along the coast don't offer necessarily? Well, you know,
0: I I guess I I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fabulous location, and that I think is is important to some people. It's not so important to me, and I've often thought that a great restaurant could be a great restaurant, whether it has a beautiful view or whether it's in a basement with no windows. It's really about food, service, and and the experience. Um, You know, that being said, it's really nice to have a beautiful location that the Bay House enjoyed for the first 41 years of its existence. Um, I'm very excited about the new location because, we have a pretty tremendous view here as well. But it's not the main thing that I'm looking for in, in, uh, in, in the restaurant. I really think that people are um, equally attracted to good food, uh, creative and inventive food. Uh, the wine list plays a big part in that because there is a big selection. There's a great opportunity to experiment and, and learn. Um, and more than anything, I think it's the personal touch. People like to be recognized. They like to be appreciated. They like that you know, that sort of, uh, you know, the the personalized style, I guess. You know, it's, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of franchise restaurants around, everything's very formulaic, you may like the menu, it's the same at every place, you may like the attitude, they, you know, they work that to be similar, but I think there's something to be said for something that is unique, a one-off, just, uh, (laughs) just an old guy out here trying to do (laughs) what he thought would, you know, would basically, I guess in the end, would satisfy me, would be the kind of place that I would be interested in being in, that's comfortable and friendly and lighthearted. And, uh, you know, we tend to deal with everything uh, with humor uh, because fun is really what it's all about for me and life in general as I see it. So even if we have an issue, we, we try to be humorous. You can think of a humorous, here's a humorous story from the Bay House. I had a guest call me over in the bar once to complain about a foreign object that he'd found in a crab cake. And I looked at it and I thought, that looks like a part of a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, how's your teeth? You oh, know, all your teeth are fine. I'm fine yeah, oh, my teeth are fine. That's of those are my, so I'm like, I'll be right back. And I had a guest in the dining room who was a dentist. <laughs> so anyway, so, Pardon me, sir. I wonder if you'd mind taking a look at this. A guest found this, and what were you thinking? He looked at it and he goes, oh, that's off a of molar. And I'm like, okay. And so I went back to the guy and said, look, uh, I don't want to be argumentative, and I'm certainly happy to take this item off of your check, but I have a dentist in the dining room who said that's part of a tooth. He
1: said, oh, well, my teeth are just fine.
0: About three days later, he called me back. He goes, you know, I'm missing a part of a tooth. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny.
1: So, yeah. Had had you saved the part of the tooth for him? I did not. Uh, After that, I figured nobody's going to use this again. (laughs) (laughs) So you're moving to this smaller space after so many years at the original Bay House location. Tell me, sort of, what prompted the move, and and what you're going for here at the at the new space. Well, I guess what prompted the move was my partner suggesting it as an
0: option. This had been their second home for the last 12 years, and. We're now working with the county to get uh, special uh, permission to do what we want to do up here, which is again be very small, focus on the special occasions that we're kind of noted for, um, and again doing something that's spectacular and unique. Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful location on 36 acres overlooking the entire bay, so it's kind of a no-brainer. We keep the name. Uh, It took a while but we got the phone number transferred up here finally. We had to switch phone companies, I guess that's a little dicey. Uh, But uh, the opportunity to have guest rooms I think will go a long way towards us mitigating the downside of a very long off-season on the coast. So if we can continue to be the culinary destination that we are with some guest rooms then I think that that goes a long way to helping us make our business successful and the fact that we'll have a chance to get even smaller means I think that you know we'll be even more responsive uh, going from a kitchen staff of six or seven down to a kitchen staff of three Uh, those people work very well together um, not having to have menus that we're uncertain how our night's gonna go. For example at the Bay House we had a, a terrific and very well priced bar menu um, and in addition to a small a la carte menu in the dining room and a five course tasting menu option. So you never really know how your night's gonna go whether everybody's gonna be in the bar having a burger or everybody's gonna be in the dining room doing the five course tasting menu it's a little iffy and you have to be ready for that. Moving to a small place like this well with no bar, no bar menu, sadly no hamburger, it was good but uh, we envision doing a seven course tasting menu up here in a a, uh, a kind of a dinner party format where guests will have the chance to not only experience the new place uh, have a a personal contact with the staff but also with their fellow diners and in that way I think it's it kind of speaks to hospitality as a way to bring people together and sharing food, breaking bread as it were, um, always a great opportunity to to make a really special experience and so that is our hope that uh, we're able to proceed there and work with the county and the zoning laws and, and get special permission to do something special. And, of course, offer an expansive wine list. A lot of wine. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, moving from a a spot where we're probably going to be about, if I had to guess business-wise, we'll probably be about 20% the size. Mm Uh, we have a long, winding driveway, so we've got to be careful with the wine consumption, of course. But I have a wine program that will definitely service a much larger restaurant than we will be. So, uh, yes, that'll be interesting. I, I'll be excited when we finally get to the point where I can start buying wine again. <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of in a consumption phase,
1: uh, as it were. But the accumulation phase is fun, too. You've talked a bit about uh, sort of seeing wine lists now with wines you don't recognize, wineries you don't recognize. Obviously, mm-hmm. the industry has grown tremendously since you've, you've been here and since you've been in the restaurant business. I'm curious, uh, as a, from your perspective, uh, what does the industry look like now? What does Oregon wine look like now in 2020, and, and maybe where do you think it's, yeah. it's going in the future? Well, good question. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's
0: interesting. It's it's it almost. Uh, almost reminds me of what the beer industry is going through you know we went from very few breweries uh, 30 years ago to now there's a brew pub on every corner and so I think we're starting to see a a washout Um, the market has sort of become saturated Uh, there's just so much to choose from that you know things are becoming either smaller they're selling out to larger uh, organizations or they're just going out of business. I don't know if that's necessarily where the Oregon wine industry is at this point, but it is interesting to see California uh, buying into the Oregon wine experience and what that offers. I think now uh, California Concern is the largest uh, land, vineyard and winery owner in our state. I think that puts pressure uh, sometimes on the smaller producers to produce more, to market better, to go farther. And so far I haven't seen where that's been a big problem where you know trying to get bigger too fast and you sacrifice quality and, and you know try to make the business work at the expense of the uniqueness and the quality that you know maybe Got them there, you know where they are in the, uh, now. Mm-hmm. I don't. Know, I don't see that as being a big problem at this point. But I can see where it could become a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the con- the consolidation that's going on. I mean, at some point there will be too many wineries. I don't know when where that point is or what that will be. But my hope is that those wineries are happy to remain small. And you know, feed their niche and work on quality. I think you know, again, getting back to uh, to Irie Vineyards, I think they're very true to that original vision that that David had. Which I think they're still just a five thousand case a year production operation, and they're very focused on quality. Um, the next generation is doing a great job with that, and uh, I don't know. I I think that's the the roadmap that a lot of smaller wineries are following, um, but there is consolidation. There is you know, every time the uh, Jackson Estate people show up in the state, they're kind of like you're a millionaire, you're a millionaire, you're a millionaire. We'll take all this and add it to our portfolio. And I was I was kind of hoping that they were interested in a nice restaurant on the Oregon coast, but so far not. <laughs> but, uh, So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's exciting times as the the next generation moves on and I think we're kind of on the cusp of the third generation. You know, dad started it, the son ran it, now his kids are are, are getting involved. And so it's very interesting. Um, It's also interesting to see, you know, what the climactic shift is gonna do for uh, the Oregon wine industry. I mean, I, I... I sure hope we don't get hot enough to do cabernet at some point but again it's interesting to see california wine producers moving this way because the writing's on the wall there'll be a time when california won't be as conducive to the kind of reds that they've you know established and 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 maybe the same will happen for oregon you know i i hope we maintain our delicate climate cuz the pinot noirs are outstanding they're not going to
1: do well if we get hot mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about for you? Obviously, you're in the period of a pretty big transition right now. What's uh, what's in the future? What do you see as you're looking ahead for yourself and, and for your restaurant? Well, um, again, I guess
0: getting the permit to serve food is big. And uh, it's it's not going to be as easy as we thought, but we are moving ahead. We've got a land use attorney working with us on that, and I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to get the county on our side to do something special and small. I think that goes a long way. Um, Beyond that, gosh, you know, you just you never really know. We're, we've kind of kept our eyes open to see if there might be another location that we might operate out of in the interim, if this ends up being a couple-year battle to, to get our permit. Um, I'm always interested in anything I can do to help promote the local tourism and the local quality factor uh, restaurant-wise. <clears throat> I think the Lincoln City in particular, we sort of, we kind of have this reputation of being kind of the t-shirt and taffy crowd and uh, you know consequently everything lots of restaurants you know if, if it can be frozen and deep-fried they got it and uh... for me that's that's not very exciting um, i like seeing what's going on salishan has made some great strides in, in getting back on the right track i mm-hmm. think uh, there's a, uh, some new operations around that. you know got my fingers crossed that they'll be you know. Into more than just uh, clam chowder and uh, cheeseburgers. So, yeah,
1: always always hoping to help help in that regard. So, all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I did, didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover we should have covered? Gosh, I can't I can't think of a thing. That was really fun. That's excellent, thank yeah, you. For thank us you. too, obviously. Really appreciate your time, your stories today, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. (laughs) Well, you go a long way to making a guy who's not very important feel important.
0: So thank you for that. And I hope this thing's okay.
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.